Hello and welcome to the Itihasa podcast on Indian history. My name is Vijay Rao. Over here on the Itihasa podcast, we aim to demystify and humanize Indian history. Every show, we will be discussing a different topic from the wide expanse of Indian history. We want to understand a little better how people of the past thought about what was happening in their lives. Think of it almost like a different case study from history every show. Hopefully, the listener finds this fun, informative, and even valuable for understanding modern India. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Itihasa podcast. My name is Vijay Rao. Today we will be discussing the Nobel Prize winning astrophysicist Subramanya Chandrasekhar and his discovery of the Chandrasekhar limit. Uh, with me to discuss this today is Nilanjan Chaudhary. Nilanjan is a graduate of IIT Kanpur and IIM Ahmedabad and hopes that this will not be held against him. He works in the IT industry in Bangalore and is also the writer of two novels and a full-length play about Chandrasekhar called The Square Root of a Sonnet. Nilanjan, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Vijay. Pleasure to be here. So, Nilanjan, let us start with the Subramanyam Chandrasekhar and the sort of his circumstance, who he was, and his and sort of where he started out from, and then we can get into a little bit about the physics that he worked on in the sort of 30s and going forward. Yeah. So, uh, Subramanian Chandrasekhar, or, you know, let's call him Chandra because that's how the world knew him. Sure. Uh, I, you know, one of the greatest scientists, physicists that India has produced, uh, and when I say produced, he, he was born here, he spent a good amount of his formative years here, and he continued to come back to India, although he did a lot of his work in Cambridge in the U.S., um, yeah, so uh, he he was uh, you know he was born uh, to a civil servant uh, father mm-hmm. in Lahore in 1910. Uh, he grew up in Lahore uh, until he was about eight, and then they, they you know the the family moved over to Madras. Uh, his dad was you know uh, in the Indian Audit and Account Service, which was a highly prestigious uh, you know post at that time. Uh, his mother, you know, very uh, learned, erudite sort of person, happened to translate Ibsen's uh, play, The Doll's House, into Tamil. So he grew up in an atmosphere of, you know, learning and, and an intellectual environment. Okay. Uh, his father actually wanted him to join the ICS, like, you know, most educated, you know, uh, sons and, yeah, and the, 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 you know, the steel frame, I think it was called, right? Um <laughs> Uh, but he he was in fact inspired by his own uncle C V Raman. Okay. Uh, now Raman is a much more sort of popular name in India today. If you ask people, they all they've all heard of Raman, but not not too many people uh, or a significant majority of people have not heard of Chandra. Although you know, he's equally great scientist. So Raman's uh, work sort of inspired him, and from an early age, Chandra was very interested in the world and in science and things like that. A little bit of a prodigy as well, right? Extremely so. Um, it's also interesting that, you know, he had homeschooling till quite, quite some time till I think till the age of 12 or so. So it goes to say, yeah, so it, you know, I think he was one of those, you know, geniuses who, who flowered on their own. And he, by the time he was, you know, 16, 17, he was, he was already 
right at the forefront at the cutting edge of physics so right. you know when we're talking of let's say the 19 mid mid uh, you know 1925 1927 28 that type of th- thing when he's you know barely 17 18 he's already started reading uh the the real cutting edge work you know that's coming out because of this whole flowering of the field of quantum mechanics so if you look at the period from about you know late 1800s to about 1930 40 this entirely new and strange science of quantum mechanics was being created as we speak right so and i'm and i understand that he was largely self taught through books because there wasn't really any professor in madras at the time who understood the concepts as well as he seems to have quite true one 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 was that you know the books that were being taught at that time um no fault of the professors and teachers really i think because uh, they they had no idea of you know the sort of advances that were happening at a very rapid pace right and he was he 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 was actually picking up stuff in fact so two two very influential you know two important events happened when he was around that very young age one was the visit of Uh, a, per- a person called Arnold Sommerfeld. Now he's okay. a very well-known physicist. He's a German uh, professor of science. Uh, so Arnold Sommerfeld had come to uh, Chennai, mm-hmm. uh, to Madras, as it was then called. Right. And he, I don't know how, but he just landed up meeting him. I think he had come for a lecture at the college and so on. And Sommerfeld gave him a book, um, Atomic Structure and Spectral Lines. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> to this very very young boy, and it was. extremely you know advanced stuff very very advanced stuff it was like stuff that was being done day before yesterday type of thing and he read it and he found it you know extremely exciting and things like that so exciting that that was the first give he, uh, gift he gave us to his wife okay wow <laughs> as a romantic gesture <laughs> to his wife lalita whom he had also met in uh, college uh there was also heisenberg mm-hmm. and he met heisenberg when uh, you know and heisenberg as you know was one of the fathers of uh, you know quantum mechanics along with niels bohr So you had, in a way, this very—I don't know. I mean, that that there was that certain magical period in in Indian science it, it, during those those times when you had a flowering. Mm-hmm. You had people like J. C. Bose, Meghnath Saha, Raman, Chandra. Put it possibly because I think you know at at that time, because of you know the British being here and so on and so forth, you were well integrated mm-hmm. into the global science scenario in certain ways, right? Right, and I I I think I read somewhere that one of his motivations when he was younger, at least he said that the environment of the time in the twenties was such that Indians wanted to prove yeah. that they could be just as good as anybody Absolutely. else, Absolutely. and so for him, the fight for equality was on the intellectual arena. That's one, uh, but I don't think he he yeah that that would have been one of those things. But I, I I think he was also inspired by figures like, for example, Ramanujan. Okay. So Ramanujan was a huge influence in his life, and right. he really looked up to Ramanujan for uh, you know being very in some similar backgrounds. You know, you know, although Ramanujan was uh, not really from a very rich family and so on and so forth, but mm-hmm. uh, his the sort of work that he did on mathematics was very inspirational to. Right, Ramanujan. In fact, there is a nice story. I'm just fast forwarding several hundred, you know, several decades now. Okay. Chandra uh, actually helped out Janaki Ammal, who's uh, Ramanujan's wife, mm-hmm. when she was in abject poverty. Oh wow! Many many years later, and can you imagine? That's in a way the tragedy of our nation that you have one of the greatest mathematical geniuses the world has seen, and his family. is is permitted to be in 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 what Almost. is called an abject poverty you know sort of state and chandra goes and helps them helps her out that's incredible it's incredible 
so in fact chandra is to he says that i used to kneel on the sands of marina beach and pray that i could become like newton and ramanujan and things like oh, that oh wow right? <laughs> that's interesting so i'm glad you mentioned ramanujan because chandra very soon follows a similar path yes. to cambridge yes uh in 1930 if i'm not mistaken correct so um similar similar and yet different uh so he writes a paper so uh, so so chandra writes a paper mm-hmm. on you know at that time what is very cutting edge stuff on fermi dirac statistics so fermi and dirac were both again one of the fathers of quantum mechanics extremely you know a physicist of an extremely high order and you have this chap this young boy who absorbs their work and creates something new and original out of it by the time is 1718 he sends the paper to uh, professor fowler in cambridge and it's well received that's incredible and uh, professor fowler was in cambridge invites him to come come over there for higher studies wow and uh all right this is where i think the story this is a very key highlight of our story so yeah. before we go any further the the the, the sort of the, the main motivation is if you want to pursue higher science at the level that chandra wanted to you had to go to some place like europe or the west you couldn't at, do at it at that yeah. time yes because yes. you didn't have the environment you didn't have the internet for one you right. know so even a journal even the basic books on what's being discovered right. were not available so mm-hmm. and you you just didn't have that sort of scientific community around you Yeah and Cambridge obviously being the leading light of these institutions absolutely yeah so he takes a boat from bombay to dover and yeah. this is what at the age of 19 and i find this to be incredible he writes he does something on that boat why don't you just explain it to our listeners right so when when he's on that boat he has three books with him i'm forgetting i'm forgetting the third but the second book the first book was this book by somerfeld atomic structure and spectral lines okay which is about the science of the very small Mm-hmm. you know you're talking about atoms and atoms are really 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 tiny right the second book he carries with him is written by his mentor and somebody who admires uh, greatly sir arthur errington okay who who now in a way makes his entry into the scene mm-hmm. and he's written again this what is called a magisterial work as it is described which is called the internal constitution of the stars right so errington's book the internal constitution of the stars in a way sets the foundation of modern astrophysics and he's re- reading both these books he's reading them because he's worried about his mother his mother is very ill okay and in fact she dies when he's at cambridge uh, tragically okay and to take his mind off that he he basically starts reading them and he's also read a paper by you know professor fowler mm-hmm. now this is going to take some explanation but basically uh, eddington had talked of what happens to stars that was really the nature of work that eddington had you know done and eddington's work showed that a star finally would collapse into nothing yeah so the traditional model that we kind of learn in school today about the stages and the growth of a star that's sort of where he started sort of eddington was one of the pioneers of that understanding yes and eddington has sort of his his, his calculations that showed him that a star would finally collapse the the basic you know qualitative reasons behind this are fairly simple what he said is that at some point of time a star is going to run out of fuel to burn okay so there's no external gas pressure to you know to counteract the inward pull of gravity okay so a star being so massive would finally start shrinking mm-hmm. and unfortunately as far as eddington was concerned it would shrink into almost nothingness okay. which would become an infinitely dense and an infinitely small point now this was eddington's conclusion fowler who was 
who basically uh, you know in a way was instrumental in getting um, uh, chandra to cambridge however showed that because of certain forces which start arising when the star shrinks beyond a certain size and the forces are quantum mechanical forces they would push the star outward again you know so you would have a equilibrium between the inward gravitational pull and the external you know quantum mechanical force pushing the star apart and it would finally become a stable core of iron now okay. this is the stage at which chandra finds himself on the boat okay okay and incidentally eddington is very happy that fowler has rescued what he calls his stars from oblivion mm-hmm. the helpless stars from oblivion and that's eddington's quote because he cannot tolerate the idea as many scientists in those days could not of an infinitely small and dense point it it was like you know as nature abhors a vacuum she also abhors infinities and many people just couldn't get it around their heads fowler rescued the stars from that uh, fate chandra on the boat reading all their equations figures out that you have not taken into account a a third effect so the first effect is that of gravity pushing mm-hmm. it in the second effect is that of you know quantum mechanical forces pushing pushing it out what's happening inside the star but the third effect is that of special relativity okay which has been pro- proposed by einstein in 1905 right so fowler has not accounted for special relativity okay and a special relativity ensures in a way and i'll tell you that how it does it later ensures that the star will again collapse under its own weight okay. into nothingness but not all stars only those stars which are above a certain mass okay okay and this is what he has concluded on the boat okay before he reaches dover extremely advanced stuff incorporating like i said the three greatest three of the greatest triumphs of human thought which is you know uh, uh, gravity uh, special relativity and quantum mechanics right right so like uh, yeah so i want to just parse that a little bit because you were talking about the sort of uh, very uh, almost a cauldron like bubbling of so many scientific breakthroughs yes and there's sort of there seems to be two big streams that are going on one is the sort of large scale giant uh, astronomical Correct. phenomenon that people like eddington on which gravity is the most important force yeah. and yeah. people like eddington are talking about and then there's the quantum mechanics which very is very tiny the, which is the new science that's happening almost the sort of the the cutting edge sexy stuff that people are doing in these well, labs across well even the across. gravitational theories was sexy stuff at that time okay but one explained the very large and the very heavy mm-hmm. the second explained the very small and the very light and chandra able uh, being able to understand both of these concepts is able to kind of come up with an understanding yeah he basically says that in a star especially a shrinking star both these things are happening together it's one of the few objects in the universe mm-hmm. in which gravity has as great a role to play as quantum mechanical forces okay all right so let's park the science there and get back to the history for a yeah. little bit so when he steps on to england he's found out this you know there's this fate of the stars which is antithetical to what eddington thinks <laughs> and what most of the scientific establishment at the time thinks at that time but eddington in particular holds it very dear to because that's his sort of right. baby so to speak yeah So Chandra comes to Cambridge he's uh mentored by people like Fowler Eddington and others gets his PhD in a few years becomes a fellow I'm just going to skip a little bit but maybe you can talk a little bit about what was his life like at Cambridge how did he how did he spend his time what did he do there Uh 
you know, I think he 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 found it like many other Indians, a bit of a cold, lonely place. He didn't have too many friends there. In fact, the only friend he says, uh, you know, that he, he that he liked or whatever, somebody he could call a friend was another another professor called Milner. Um, there was a sort of strained relationship with Eddington, whom whom he considered his <clears throat> guru, so to speak, because Eddington, in a way, kept refusing to you know, accept his results, so to speak. Okay. Uh, he also didn't find much traction with the rest of the, you know, the the, the sort of dons who were there at, uh, you know, Cambridge. Mm-hmm. But he was very well respected. He was very well regarded. But I don't think he had much of a personal life. He also doesn't talk much about it. Right. So, you know, what we have, uh, you know, and in terms of those four or five years, Lalita says that you never, you know, wrote much to me during those those years. Mm-hmm. So before he goes, he's actually uh, fallen in love with Lalita, his wife. But a he future doesn't, wife at this his point. Future he wife, doesn't yes, get married future yet. wife, yeah. Mm-hmm. But from these years, 1932, you know, 1936, when he finally leaves for Chicago, he doesn't talk much about his personal life, so to speak. But, but it's it's muted. You can imagine that it yeah. was pretty difficult. And like but he said, he had the usual problems of you know the the weather, the the the, the food and right. you know stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, obviously, there must have been some kind of racial tension as well. Although I don't, in my reading of his sort of writings, I haven't seen too much of him talking about it. But I feel like that must have been part of the equation as well. I think in a you know sort of more uh, protected academic environment like Cambridge, it 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 wasn't it wasn't explicit. Okay. Yeah, there might be undercurrents, but it's not explicit. And uh, you you also had the whole you know Ramanujan episode happening before that with with okay. Hardy and Ramanujan. So there was this. Uh, he was not an entirely uh, you know exotic Indian right. so there. There was precedent. Uh, there there was. And okay. uh, Eddington himself, if you know you know one of the main characters in this, um, we we don't see huge evidence of him being racist or colonial in his mindset, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Although in the play I do explore those angles. Mm-hmm. But in 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 conclusion, I reject those angles as well. Okay, so you br- you brought him up. We've talked about him a little bit. Let us uh, dive into the personality of Arthur Eddington. Hmm. So Eddington, you know, like like your typical Cambridge don at at that time, extremely erudite, extremely well read, master, you know, a sort of brilliant mathematician, but also you know, uh, like like many people in those days, very well versed in you know Shakespeare and languages and Greek and you know things like that. Um, also, um, this could have had a significant uh, you know role in in the in the way things panned out eventually. A very devout Christian, uh, a Quaker. Okay. okay. Uh, never married. Uh, very very conscientious in terms of uh, you know his religious strong in his religious beliefs. Uh, refused to join the war effort uh, in the Great War. Okay. Um, because he became a conscientious objector, although he was socially ostracized and so on. Also, he, you know, at one point of time, Eddington was more famous world over than Einstein. Okay. Right? Oh, wow. Yeah. Many people had not heard of Einstein, but they had all heard of Eddington because he was also a great popularizer of science. So he used to, you know, write books, give lectures and things like that. And he had a, you know, the typical British wit and charm about it. So he was a very good communicator. Mm. Also, like I said, um, you know, I, I write about in the play, he was one of the three people. So, you know, uh, there was a there was an incident where a reporter goes to Eddington and says, uh, Professor, I believe you are only one of the three people who understands Einstein's uh, general theory of relativity. 
and Eddington says, uh, I can't imagine who's the third. <laughs> <laughs> so so basically it was him and Einstein only who, right. who really understood it for a while. Mm. And when I talk of the general theory of relativity, which was, you know, discover you know, which Einstein proposed in nineteen fourteen. Right. It's it's really a very remarkable, you know, piece of work. Okay. And it's really about de- dealing with, in a way with invisibilities, with space, you know, uh, and how matter shapes space and stuff like that. Very, very uh, uh, profound advancements in our, in, our, in our, you know, understanding of the universe. Very profound. And, uh, you know, Eddington actually came up with this thought process of, you know, how it could be proved. And he went down to Africa and he proved it just, you know, very soon after the Great War had ended, the, the World War One had ended, in which Germany was destroyed. Mm. And he goes down and as a British scientist to prove a so-called German theory. Oh, and wow. he's he's actually ostracized and he's shunned by many of his own, you know, colleagues at uh, British scientists, etc. For two reasons. One is that you've just got over a war. Friends and you know, relatives have died. And secondly, because Einstein's theory of you know, general relativity, if proven right, is going to overthrow Newton's. Right. And... You know, there's some amount of national pride, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, involved, but Eddington still goes ahead, and he really is the guy who makes Einstein a world, you know, a, a hero, so to speak. So great commitment and dedication to science, and so on. Yeah. So let me let me just because I think this is important to understand the character a little bit before we get into his then subsequent relationship with Chandra, because what he has done is so Einstein has propounded these theories, and they're still yet to be exp- uh, uh, sort of experimentally verified. Ah, so they're yet to be accepted because they have not been experimentally verified. And Eddington designs an experiment that will verify this. That's right. And it's an experiment that requires him to be near the equator, right? Uh, and yeah. and so he goes down uh, to Africa and conducts... It's an this island experiment. called Principe. Yeah. Okay. And conducts this experiment and comes... And on the on the basis of that experiment... And I uh, just for our listeners, this is a more of a history show than a science show. But if you can give us about a line or two on what that experiment was. The, the experiment basically was to prove the prediction uh, made by Einstein mm-hmm. that a large body will actually bend light. When, right. So light travels in straight lines is all we knew until 1919. Mm-hmm. What Einstein says is light travels in straight lines... Only if there is no mass near it. Okay. If there is a near a, a, a large mass near it, as light passes by that large mass, it will bend. It will not go straight. Okay. Yeah. And Eddington is verifies this experiment. Proves it during a total solar eclipse that's visible on on Principe. Okay. Okay. Excellent. So we got, we get that. So he is. So Eddington is not. We we've just backed up a little bit because this is happening in 1919, whereas yeah. Chandra has made his entry in Cambridge in 19. Yeah. 30. Yeah. Yeah. So, but just to set the stage, that Eddington is not the Eddington is a guy who has broken with previous accepted wisdom and conventional wisdom Absolutely. in the past. So yeah. it's not that he's somebody who's trying to hold on to scientific traditions. No. Uh, he is willing to be open-minded, but we mentioned Chandra's. Uh, the Chandrasekhar limit and what was what uh, he had come up with on his board. He refines that paper in the in the first few years in Cambridge, and is invited by the Royal Astronomical Society to present this paper. Uh, no, you have to back up a little there, <laughs> because you know what 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 he does on the board. Like I said, he he sort of uh, he he sort of says that a you know a certain type of star is going to collapse into something very very small. 
And as I said, it's a conclusion that's uh, highly disturbing to Eddington. Mm -hmm. And Eddington, at, in, in, in certain ways, rejects it at first. But later on, he starts taking a great interest in the in the whole paper. So at, at first, he says that this is just nonsense. You know, it goes against natural law. This goes against God. Why would God, who made such a huge, bright object, allow it to descend into nothing? It defies all logic. And mm -hmm. I, I just don't believe this stuff. However... Somewhere close to 1935, he starts taking a sudden interest to Chandra's surprise. Mm -hmm. He starts taking a great interest in Chandra's work and he says, well, maybe there is something in it. Why don't you let me look at it and so on and so forth, right? Chandra's, he gets an invitation from the Royal Astronomical Society. I mean, he basically facilitates or arranges for Chandra's lecture at the Royal Astronomical Society. Okay. Okay, so he's instrumental in making sure that Chandra talks at the Royal Astronomical Society's annual general meeting. It's a highly prestigious event. Okay. Uh, he also ensures that instead of the regular 15 minutes that's given to a speaker, Chandra's time is extended to half an hour. Okay. So he's basically coming, coming out almost as if he's like, this is a great big new discovery and this is Correct. a prod prodigy who's come up with it and we need to really listen to this. This is the stage that Eddington is Correct. setting. He invites all the big shots, you know, Hardy, Jean, Stratton, Fowler, etc., etc. All the who's who okay. for that meeting. Okay. Uh, and, and the other thing he does is, you know, just before this meeting, he also arranges for the first, you know, one of those early computers, the calculating machine, for to help Chandra. So, and Chandra has no idea of what's coming. And what does come is the moment he presents his paper, Eddington gets up and completely cuts him. Okay. So he, he, he makes statements to the effect that, you know, the paper that you've just heard, the foundations of it are completely wrong. Uh, he says things like, you know, what, what Mr. Chandrasekhar has presented today is nothing short of stellar buffoonery. Now, this is to a room full of, you know, the, the greatest scientists of the age. And he has set up this meeting. Right. And he has encouraged Chandra to present the paper, almost, you know, guided him to present the paper. And then he it's like a volleyball being raised and then slam dunked. Unbelievable. And unbelievable. And, so he's and, and he says he think he says things like, you know, really cutting things. Your your theory is born from the union of, you know, quantum mechanics and special relativity. And I do not consider such a union born of uh, of lawful wedlock. Wow. So it's, it's really I for the stars, you know, I for one want to give more protection to the stars than just a, you know, uh, just an accident. It's unprecedented in the annals of modern science. And I mean, just to give you some context, Eddington is now in his early 50s. He's a highly respected scientist. Was it? Yeah, yeah. He's a highly respected yeah. scientist. He's done all kinds of great experimental work. He's very senior in the Cambridge University astrophysics department. Whereas Chandra is in his mid-twenties. Okay, just about 25, yeah, when got, he's presented this yeah, paper. Yeah, has not really done too much. I mean, he's just about got his PhD, uh, you know, and and one of his intellectual heroes and mentors is basically cuts him down. Do we have any record of what he felt about the event? Chandra has been very reticent about this. So he 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 doesn't... You know, there are, there are, uh, uh, there is evidence of, you know, him going and talking to Milner and, you know, obviously he's, he protested against it and things like that. But, but you know, the, the, the very curious thing about this relationship, huh? In even, even I think in as late as 1983, if I'm not mistaken, he writes a book called Eddington, the greatest astrophysicist of our age. 
Wow. In his Nobel speech, he mentions Eddington 11 times. Wow. So, and throughout, he continues to acknowledge the role of Eddington as a great scientist, as a great astrophysicist. It's 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 one of those things which you find difficult to reconcile. I mean, and, and you, you must... And I think there are two reasons there. I mean, I, th- I think uh, one part was that Chandra somehow was able to separate the scientist from the man. So when he talked about Eddington, it was his science and the contributions he had made, etc. And he says that without, you know, without Eddington's basic work, I would not have been able to do anything much in astrophysics. But it is also very strange the the way he continues to you know give a lot of praise etc to Eddington in right. spite of this incident happening. In private though he he goes and he meets all the other physicists he goes to Bohr Pauli etc etc he fights his case. Okay, he fights his case. Uh, I think in different conferences he tries to counter Eddington. He tries to you know reject what Eddington has said, but he is not successful. Mm. The other tragedy that happens apart from this, you know, this remarkable incident at the Royal Astronomical Society on January 1st, 1935. Following that, the for three, four years, he actually tries to present his case to, you know, Niels Bohr and Pauli and, and all these people, the greats of um, uh, European physics. All of them say in private that he's right. Wow. But nobody wants to go but against... But nobody says that in a public forum. Because they don't want to cross Eddington? For what reason? One was this sheer you know, weight that Eddington has, that's number one. Secondly, I think from a scientist's perspective, you know, astrophysics was not the the real domain of many of these people. Okay. I mean, they were still at the atomic level. Right. So while they obviously understood the physics and etc. And, and they were very, very great scientists, maybe they said, well, we are not the subject matter experts. So I don't know what their reasons were either for not coming out, you know, strongly, or maybe they didn't think it was important. Or, by the way, I'm I'm getting into a realm of speculation now. Right. <clears throat> it's, okay. So we don't know, but it's really quite unprecedented, both what happened at the Royal Astronomical Society, as well as his aftermath, and this very mysterious <laughs> behavior of Chandra for many, many years. Right. Yeah. So, okay, that's... that's Just one last incident I must mention, please. you know, which, uh, which... And so... You know, if you fast forward to 1944, I think, or 1944, 45, 44, I think. Chandra is now in Chicago. Eddington is still in Cambridge. Eddington's got cancer and he's dying. Hmm. And Chandra sends him across food packets from across the ocean. Wow. Because they're struggling through war rationing. Because they're struggling through war rationing. He doesn't have a diet. He doesn't have money. It shows, you know, great humanity, humanity and and uh, a way, I think, that he had resolved the whole Eddington issue in his head somehow. Right. But in one way, he doesn't. He leaves Cambridge. He leaves Cambridge, yes. Right? And one, I mean, again, just to speculate, but one may think that this may have had something to do yes, with it. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, again, we are in the realms of probability, but I think it is highly probable that this incident had a great deal to do with it because when he when he goes, the place where he goes to is not the throbbing heart of science at that time. Right. Okay? It's it's not, uh, you know, Harvard or it's, it's not any of those places. It's Williams Bay. Mm-hmm. Which is quite a small Yerkes uh, Observatory, yeah, near the University of Chicago. It's quite a small town. Yeah, it's a town in the Midwest. It's kind of far away from it's anything. Far in away. The US. And while there was some, you know, de- decent people there, it's it, uh, it's not a very you know understandable choice, a logical choice. But he goes there. Yes. Yeah. So he goes there at the behest of a gentleman by the name of Otto Struve, I Correct. guess, or through or not at the behest, but through through the assistance of who is the. Uh, who's the astronomer and head of the astrophysics department at the University of Chicago. 
And he joins the University of Chicago in 1937. He makes a quick detour to India along the way to marry his, like you said, his uh, his uh, sort of the love Sweetheart. of his life, Lalita, and then they together move to Chicago. And from 1937 onwards, he is... Did he marry in 37? 36. 36, I think. He yeah. joins the university in 37. Yeah, I think he married her in 36, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, from then onwards, late 30s, from then onwards, he doesn't leave the faculty of the University of Chicago till the end of his life. Pretty much, yeah. Okay. And um, he also, by uh, 39, he says, I am done with white dwarfs, collapsing stars, the possibility of black holes. Right. right, And he just moves on to something else. And that was a pattern that he followed the rest of his career. He would work on a problem mm-hmm. for about 7 to 10 years, write a book on it and go move on to the next one. But again, my views and, you know, I think views of other people and scientists etc. that I've spoken to, while he did extremely good work in each of those areas, they were not what one would call path-breaking work. Right. Yeah. Right. In between, he also, uh, you know, was was part of um, uh, the engineering aspects of designing the atom bomb. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. When when he was in America, because the Second World War had broken out in thirty nine. Right. And so then he doesn't work at man at the Manhattan Project itself. Although um, I've I think I read somewhere that. Uh, but just before we get there, you yeah. know, I'd like to point out one of these twists of history. Uh, thirty nine September thirty nine. Hmm. I mean, maybe this is one of the reasons why he just quit that field in 39. September 39 is when Hitler's troops march into Poland. Right. September 39 is also when the September issue of the Physical Review is published. Okay. The Physical Review is the, the sort of uh, journal mm-hmm. at that time. So it you, you they published only really good articles and, you know, fundamental stuff. There is an article by Oppenheimer. Okay. And Schneider. Oppenheimer goes on to head the Manhattan Project. And right. Oppenheimer writes an article... On something very, very similar. Not identical, but very, very similar to what Chandra had written in 1930. Right. So Oppenheimer, in a way, independently arrives at the similar conclusions as Chandra had done. Mm -hmm. And then there are people who think that, you know, that should have, that should have revived Chandra's contribution. It was really very, very important contribution, but it sinks without a trace. There are people like Freeman Dyson and all who are, you know, very great scientists who've said that this was probably Oppenheimer's best scientific work. A short paper, but it sinks without a trace. Fundamental paper. Hmm. Surprisingly, it sinks without a trace because in that same issue of physical review right. is a, another paper by Niels Bohr and John Wheeler. Okay. Niels Bohr and John Wheeler in that paper have basically spelt out the way of creating a self-sustaining nuclear reaction, which is the formation, which is the fundamental scientific basis for creating the atomic bomb. On the same day, <laughs> That Hitler's troops have marched into Germany. Goodness. Now, now this fact is not lost on the many, many smart people in the world. Right. A war has broken out. A bomb is going to solve that problem faster than, you know, tanks and missiles and, you know. And so planes, if we yeah. start making the bomb now and Hitler being what he is, we can, the allies can win. Right. And this paper by Boren Wheeler sets out that path. Now Oppenheimer's paper gets, no one notices it. Chandra's one vindication also fails. And and then Oppenheimer, like you said, goes on to head the Manhattan Project. I read somewhere that uh, they wanted Chandra to join, but they couldn't get security clearances for him because he wasn't a he U.S. national. He was not national. an American citizen, yeah. Um, but he does in some help in some respects. I've heard that he went and worked at one of the labs. Aberdeen yeah. Proving Grounds, it's called. Yeah. So he went there, and but what he's working on is 
what should I say? You know, he's he's working on old Newtonian mechanics. You know, how how high must a bomb be released so that its fragments disperse to the maximum possible area and stuff like that. Very very right. You know, engineering type of work. I would say not really basic science. Right. And uh, but he does it, and um, he says that this is you know I need to do it because there's a war on. Okay, um, so then he again goes on to have a very illustrious career, another 40-year career in at the University of Chicago, where, you, like you said, he goes and delves into various different topics of uh, scientific inquiry, astrophysical inquiry. But, you know, I let's fast forward. We're coming towards the end of the episode. Uh, we fast forward to, I guess, 1983. Uh, but before sorry. the 1960s, he okay. returns once more to the study of black holes. Okay. Uh, because, oh, right. Now, now by this point, yes. there are other people who are talking about what he was Correct. talking about. Correct. And the con- the concept, the problem that he had identified. Can you just make the connection between the Chandra limit and the concept of black hole? Because today everyone has heard the phrase black hole. But at Very the time... quickly. I don't know. Yeah. You don't have much time, I presume. Yeah. So, um, you know, the Chandrasekhar limit basically des- divides stars into two categories. Right. There is one one sort of stars which are heavy stars which have a mass greater than the Chandrasekhar limit, and the Chandrasekhar limit is one point four four times the mass of our sun. Okay. So stars which begin their lives mm-hmm. at a mass which is greater than one point four four times the mass of the sun or the Chandrasekhar limit, basically what what Chandra showed was that such stars would eventually collapse into a very very small, uh, you know, area, very, very small volume, extremely, extremely dense, so dense that even light wouldn't be able to escape it, mm-hmm. and into something that is called today by the name black holes. Right. Right. However, for stars which started their life smaller than the Chandrasekhar limit, they would eventually become cold spheres of iron, okay. like Professor Fowler had predicted. Right. So really, what what Chandrasekhar uh, did was to lay out in a way the first step towards the discovery of black holes, which have been experimentally verified, etc. Okay, and so he comes back to the study of black holes now uh, in the 1960s. In the 1960s, yeah. uh, so comes back full circle, publishes a lot of work there, and he's oh by the way, I just want to say he's so this is the interesting speculation. Huh. There are people who said that if Eddington had not cut him down like that, right, that it wouldn't be Stephen Hawking and Roger Penrose and you know uh, this guy Kerr and all these people. Hmm. The two of them might have actually evolved this whole field out themselves 40 years before it was actually done. Wow, incredible. <laughs> so if, if Eddington had been a little bit more gracious, Chandra might it's have... It's an interesting speculation, but yes. stayed in Cambridge yeah. and they could have... And we would have known Chandra as much as we know Stephen Hawking today. It's That's so incredible. Um, he also, in, uh, during this time, is he succeeded the great scientist Edwin Hubble as the editor of the Astrophysical Journal, yes. which is the premier journal for this field, which he maintains as the editorship of that for, I think, 20 years. Yes. Um... So a very so very illustrious, very well respected people coming finally coming around to his point of view, to the point where Sweden calls in 1983. Yeah, and um, again the reason why his work you know resurfaces one of the, one of the reasons is you know what I read is the hydrogen bomb is being made at that time in the 60s and 70s, and okay. there are processes in the hydrogen bomb which are very similar to what's happening in stars. Okay, so. <laughs> So some of this literature that gets, uh, you know, raked up. And yes, finally at 83, he does win the Nobel with with his friend, Professor Fowler. Okay. With his colleague, Professor Fowler, yes. Okay. Uh, one also mentioned that, uh, among other honors, he is a Padma Vibhushan recipient in India. And also NASA has named an orbital X-ray telescope yes. after him. So yes. it's, there is a telescope that's orbiting the Earth today. That has that's called the Chandra Chandrasekhar Telescope. X-ray Observatory. Yeah. Yeah. Ch- Chandrasekhar X-ray. X-ray Observatory. Yes. 
Um, and uh, so, yeah, so he wins the Nobel Prize and gets final vindication. And like you mentioned, what does he do in that prize? He mentions... Eddington, 11 times. <laughs> he also says that, you know, it's okay. You know, I he, he won it in 83. He was 73 years old then, right? Okay. So he says... <laughs> for something I did when I was 19 you know right. I have done a lot of other things you know please also talk about those things right incredible um, yeah so um, yeah I mean I guess that's that's uh, that's really the story of a, a man who's a kind of a little bit of a loner uh, sort of had a little bit of a difficult experience uh, but got all of the acclaim in later life for that difficulty that that for the work that he did in the most difficult period of his life so quite but like you just mentioned mm -hmm. you know when he had his uh, heart surgery uh, <laughs> in his in the 70s right and like he says if the doctor didn't save me i you know i wouldn't have got the nobel <laughs> yeah so very interesting but, but, but you know also forget about i mean i mean i don't think there was any bitterness in him at the end right see he was a fine human being and a scientist although he may have been reticent and he says the joy of doing it has been enough for me. And I think this is one of those cases where it is genuinely true. Right. Right. He didn't hanker for honors and things like that. It was really the joy of finding things out, as Richard Feynman says. And and most of these really great scientists, you see, that's their greatest kick, the right. joy of finding things out. And, he, and I think he sampled that. Right. Well, wonderful. So, Nilanjan, I just want to say I'll end with a quote from Carl Sagan about Chandra. Carl Sagan was a student of his at the University of Chicago. And Carl Sagan says, I discovered what true mathematical elegance is from Subramaniam Chandrasekhar. So, uh, I think we'll leave the last word there. Nilanjan, thank you so much for joining us here. Anything you'd like to add or... No, I just realized that we didn't speak at all about Lalita, who had a very important uh, yeah. you know, role in his Sorry. life. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe I will summarize Chandra's life in the way Chandra summarized it himself, okay. paying due tribute and great tribute to Lalita. And the way he summarizes up his own life mm -hmm. is he says the following. Um, I came to, uh, came, I'm tr trying to quote from memory, I, I left India in 1930 and came to Cambridge. I returned to India in 1936 Married a girl who had been waiting six years for me, mm -hmm. went to Chicago and lived happily thereafter. That's incredible. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Nilanjan. Really appreciate you being here on the show. For our listeners, if you want to check out what Nilanjan's up to and some of the other things that Nilanjan has done and uh, want to just get more information about him, you can look him up at www.nilanjan.net. That's N-I-L-A-N-J-A-N.net. If you can get a chance to see his play, The Square Root of a Sonnet, which is about the conflict between Eddington and Chandra, I've, I've seen it and I highly recommend you uh, take a look at it. Uh, Nilanjan, anything else you would like to plug or mention? No, thank you. Thank you so much. It's uh, been a pleasure being here on Itihas. I think you guys are doing a fabulous job in you know bringing these little stories of Indian history to life. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Uh, so with that, thank you all for listening and we'll be back as soon as we can with another episode. Take care. So that's the end of this episode of the Itihasa podcast. Thank you as always to the listeners of the show. Keep listening to us on soundcloud.com slash Itihasa podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Itihasa podcast and write to us at itihasapodcast at gmail.com. Itihasa Podcast is spelled I-T-I-H-A-S-A-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. 
Ditihasa podcast is produced by Octavium Studios in Bangalore. Check us out at octavium.in. That's O C T A V I U M . I N. My thanks as well to Pandit Prakash Sontake and the musicians at Octavium for the wonderful theme music to the show. Thanks for listening. My name is Vijay Rao and we'll be back with another episode soon. Take care.